Even you're listening to the podcast in conversation with IPR and competition law. I am Aditya Trivedi, founder and head of the competition law team of the podcast and your host. I am Nigang Patel, the co-head for the competition host for this podcast. In this podcast, we usually discuss the competition law updates and invite competition lawyers and academicians across the world as our guests. Let's welcome our esteemed guest for today's episode, Mr. Ariel Azrachi, Slaughter and May Professor of Competition Law, University of Oxford, and Mr. Maurice Tuck, Douglas Eblaze, a distinct professor of law at the College of Law, University of Tennessee. Welcome, professors. Thank you for having us. Thank you. They are competition law geniuses, and I'm a very big fan of them. I have read their book, Virtual Competition, which was published in 2016. And now they bring to us a new new book, the latest publication, which is How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation and How to Strike Back. Before discussing the book, introducing you all to Professor Ariel. He is a Slaughter and May Professor of Competition Law and a fellow of Pembroke College, Oxford. He also serves as the director of the University of Oxford Center for Competition Law and Policy. And as told, he is an author of multiple and policy. Professor Marie Sister, he's the co competition institute and a law professor at the University of Tennessee and an off-council at Conference Group. Professor Stuck and speaks regularly on competition policy in the United States, Europe, and Asia. In this particular episode, our two esteemed guests would be having a conversation latest about how Big Tech Barons smash child back. The authors deconstruct the drivers and inhibitors to innovation in the digital economy. How tech companies can stifle disruption and they try to assess the toll of big tech companies on our well-being and democracy. Ultimately, the authors also try to outline some policy changes required to take power away from big tech and return it to entrepreneurs. Thank you, Nagant. Let's start the conversation. Well, firstly, we would like to the essential features of tech balance apart from their market size that from other players in the market and how do they exercise influence beyond their so in in our book and and we we look at the at the digital tech barons and the whole uh, research into this area began when the european commission asked us several years ago to look at innovation in the digital economy and help identify what are the obstacles and um, challenges at stake and what we realized is that whereas we have platforms and ecosystems where you have um, a lot of applications, uh, input providers, and of course users uh, that all benefit, these platforms also many times act as gatekeepers, act as inhibitors to innovation. So our focus is on these big tech barons who are not just large companies, but large companies that manage to occupy a very central position, a central junction on the market. And because of network effects, because of the way market tip in favor of the incumbent, because of their ability to utilize market power 
and some strategies that they deploy, those tech barons manage to position themselves um, and shield themselves to some extent from competitive pressure and innovative pressure. So they are really the focal point of our inquiry. And what we highlight and our starting uh, point in the book is that while, of course, those tech barons, those massive companies are often responsible for a lot of innovations around us, and many people see them as coral reefs that attract innovation, they also stifle quite a lot of innovation in their quest to only promote their own value chains and quash any disruption. So, so one way to, 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 to differentiate is like we, we start with this line that we've heard that, you know, apps are worth millions and platforms are worth billions. But the ecosystems that we identify are worth more than just billions. They're quasi sovereigns. And, and we'll discuss this later in the podcast. They set the rules of competition. They adjudicate those rules. And companies really don't have an option that they either play by the rules set by these big tech barons or they're kicked out. And what distinguishes an ecosystem, not just in terms of its wealth and its size, is the fact that it has multiple platforms that interlocked. And so they're unavoidable. Like you could say, I'm going to avoid Amex by dropping, uh, I'm going to avoid rather Amazon by dropping Prime. But it's really hard to avoid Amazon, particularly if you're on a website that's um, hosted by their uh, cloud service. So the one who came up with ecosystems was not really us. It was uh, Google CEO. He says that what they're seeking to create are not platforms, but ecosystems. And that led us to inquire, what does he mean by that? What does it mean to have an ecosystem as opposed to just a platform? Thank you so much for such an elaborative or rather the answer to the question, especially with respect to the ecosystem network, with this concept of people as to what is the particular ecosystem, what are the major players, and as to the concept of gatekeepers, both of you, and I really appreciate such an insightful answer. So, going Could you please elaborate further on it since it is essentially known to play a major role in the digital ecosystem, especially when it comes to the big tech players? We'd be glad to have your views on this. I'm sorry, but it was at least on my end, it was a little bit hard to um, hear your question. You were right. No worries, like we would re uh, repeat the question. So we'd, uh, we, uh, we'd be glad to discuss about the interoperability tor torpedo, which was described in the book. Could you please elaborate on it further, since it is known to have a major impact on digital ecosystem, especially with respect to big tech players? Right. So one of the, I mean, interoperability, basically, if you want to visualize it, are the bridges that you need to pass from one group to another. And if you don't have, if, you're, if the bridges are burned, then you're basically an island. And people can, might want to, to, to access your, your app. But if it's not easily interoperable with other apps or it's not easily interoperable with um, the ecosystems, then they're disfavored. And often 
the the view is that it's a problem with the app itself rather than looking at the ecosystem itself and we point out several examples about how interoperability plays such a key role and the concern is that when you control an ecosystem you can degrade interoperability in so many different ways that you could then hinder then the performance of that platform and this wasn't just you know conjecture we actually looked at the um, securities violence and in our earlier book we we did as well and what we found was this concern about how life can be quite precarious when you're depending on a large platform and facebook in fact talks about that and you can see why it's seeking to develop um the metaverse is that it precisely because it doesn't want to be reliant on android or apple that in staking out a future in the metaverse it wants to control its own underlying platforms and then others then will then have to then live by then the uh, facebook rules so you 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 can just look at the um, sec filings by facebook and then ironically facebook using those same tactics at times against apps that rely on its um, ecosystem and the significance then for innovation is that if someone is able to damage or completely remove the bridge that links your innovative idea your business model uh, to consumers to demand then you you lack the scale there is no way for you to grow so for many innovators if they want to invest in disruptive innovation and they see a need they see how consumers or users desire certain type of innovation immediately they have to think whether whatever it is that they are pursuing could run uh, against the the values or the agenda of the big tech barons and if it does they already know that their access to the market is likely to be undermined so the reason we focus on those bridges is that you can understand if you understand the value of those bridges you can also see how controlling them enable the large ecosystems to chill the type of innovation that we might desire because those innovators will just refrain from innovating if they know that their access will be undermined and then you can take it further because if it chills the innovators it also chills those who might invest in those innovations and we refer to that and the industry sometimes refer to that as the elephant path if you identify that some types of innovation go against the value chain the profit motive of the leading platforms you're basically standing on the elephant path no one is going to invest in you because you are likely to be very quickly run over by the large elephants as they continue uh, to pursue the value chain of uh, the main ecosystems thank you so much professors for enlightening us with the vertical integration the elephant paths larger elephants larger sharks a big tech that we can call them the interoperability torpedo as we discussed as you discussed in the book we would also like you to answer that 
that how does the present governance structure allow the tech barons to create and enforce rules to their ultimate benefit overpowering the competitive concerns professors what is your opinion well th- this is is very closely linked to what we just discussed um <clears throat> think of any platform that you join as an autonomy and if you want to travel through that autonomy to reach the citizens which uh in our example those will be us the users the consumers then you are subjected to the rules of the autonomy in other words it is not just about allowing you access or not it is also about determining what rules apply to you if and when you are allowed access so take for example uh the ability for applications in the apple uh, store to promote uh their own services the ability to enable sideloading in a meaningful way on android um think for example about um the use of payment systems on some uh, leading platforms think about the ability to gain uh direct access to your customers or think about the ability of platforms to track any movement that you make as the supplier as you enter their autonomy so once you imagine and you appreciate that those ecosystems are in many ways sovereign autonomies then you realize that they are governed by rules that they dictate and this has a very significant implication because many people when they think about the online environment imagine it as a free market they imagine it as an environment in which the dynamics of competition enable us to really prosper and yield the most out of the market but in reality these are controlled ecosystems these are ecosystems where the sovereign is a private company that created a landscape where others compete and this is really the key if you try to understand how come some technologies make it to the market and some don't we we talk about this also in our other book competition overdose um if you remember the movie the hunger games that it seemingly was free competition that each tribune each tribute would compete against others and the the best one would prevail but what you could see though in the hunger games is that the games were carefully choreographed and that some competitors might face more hurdles than others and what we then look then they call the architects of those games in the um, the game makers and that's what we call the big tech bands that they're the ones who create the the game they're determining the paths that competitors must take and then they can take measures to make it very difficult for some competitors to compete or nearly impossible by kicking them out of their ecosystem. So, if you want to look at the governance, just think about the Hunger Games and those that, you know, control the um the levers of the game. Thank you so much for such a practical answer, professors, especially the relationship with the real life scenarios uh, with respect to even movies like this makes a lot of sense and the illustrations which were earlier provided do make us understand do help us in understanding the very nature of the concept in a very very wide way 
especially when it comes to the complexities involved in the concepts it do, does help a lot especially uh, when the free market is disguised uh, the free market which is essentially uh, disguised to have the controlled ecosystem approach wherein the sovereign is the private corporation the mechanism for regulation does indeed uh, get get in tough so thank you so much for the answer so following on uh, coming to the next question what do what uh, what do you think about the dynamics that change the very nature of value of innovation and so far how do you think that the policy makers have taken into consideration the ecosystem's value chain yeah so there, there's two two distinct concepts um there that we discuss and one of them okay. is value and no one really talks about the value of innovation the i mean the assumption is that if there's innovation it must offer value and then the second is this assumption is that, and this came from you know, um, neoclassical economic uh, theory, that if there's demand for innovation, it must have value, right? Just just because someone is willing to buy it or willing to um, use it, there must be intrinsic value um, with it, and that's not necessarily the case. What what we identify is there's at least three different categories of value. There are innovations that create value overall for society, that they make our lives easier, they save us time and energy, and they benefit us all. And a good example there would be like the X-ray machine, right? That that was helped um, uh, doctors um, in, in many ways be, before having that, and, and, or the MRI for that matter. The second type of innovation is the value is not so much created, it's more shifts from one group to another. And then the third would be innovations that don't necessarily create overall value for society. They primarily benefit a few, that extract most value for themselves. And it's important then to think that, you know, when, when, when a big tech baron says that they innovate, where along the three lines is it? Is it innovations that actually create value for society? Is it simply extracting value at, um, for their benefit or is it destroying value? And then the second notion that, that we talk about is the value chain. And here you look at how value is created, extracted, or destroyed, and who gets it, and what are the incentives that that ecosystem creates. And so when we look at like behavioral advertising, what you see then is that a few companies extract most of the value. They derive most of the benefits. And Many of the others are, are competing for the remnants of that. And then you look at behavioral advertising, and then you look at the incentives that it creates and the impact that it has on, 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 on innovation. So keeping those two concepts in mind, first, what is the value of innovation? And then second, what are the incentives of the ecosystem and how do they divide up the, um, the value that's created within their ecosystem when you're looking at the value chain? Yeah, and maybe just to add one more comment on this. 
what we also see, and this goes back to the idea of the sovereign tech barons, is that the more you benefit from market power, the, the less you are affected by the desires of society. Um, and what happens because of the multi-sided markets that we have um, in most ecosystems, the drivers are not really the users and consumers. Um, society is, is, is uh, relatively secondary in significance. Uh, many times we as users are in many ways the product rather than um, the beneficiaries. So what you have there with the growth of market power, we see a certain correlation with market power and toxicity of innovation. Innovation is more likely to be deployed in a way that does not benefit you the more market power you have. And the reason is quite simple, because you have less outside options, many times because of the stealth mode uh, in which those innovations are implemented. Many of us are not even aware of the full extent. So certainly the story of innovation um, goes to the heart of the quality and nature of innovation, not just a quantitative approach. Thank you so much answers and also talking about the value of innovation the story of innovation ecosystems value chain is affected how they are taken into considerations by the policy practical insights that you gave to us and what you mentioned in the group is worth uh, next asking to you is there's an of consumer law and competition law how can the consumers be proactively disruptive innovations which are likely to affect their overall well and autonomy since it's very difficult to predict the exact yeah that's yeah that's a very good question um, sometimes when we speak with with uh, policymakers about this and they tell us but surely consumers should be more proactive uh, we like to to think about it as if you are using maybe your analog uh, wisdom and means in a very advanced digital world. Uh, it is almost like going to the casino and maybe sometimes being able to win and, and have the upper hand. But overall, you know that the house wins and that you are likely to lose. And I think, and I say that because in the context of our discussion, as a consumer, you can make a lot of steps to try and improve your knowledge about what affects you. You can try and review very carefully the consents when it comes to privacy. You can try to sideload applications that are preferable to you. Uh, but your ability is limited, and that is the point. The point is that in those distorted ecosystems, we as consumers have a limited ability to reach the innovation we desire. So the solution is not in asking us to do more, although we should always try to do more and be more aware of what is available to us. The solution has to be more structural in nature and go to the heart of the dynamics of competition and innovation. It has to deal with the laws that are applied to those ecosystems, their ability to distort innovation, their ability to change the paths that we are using to create friction 
when it comes to us accessing certain types of innovation. So I think this is the this is this goes down goes to the point of all of us maybe appreciating that although the internet often seems to us like an extremely competitive environment, it is not. It might look like a market, but it is actually a controlled environment. And in a controlled environment, us as consumers, we can try our best, but we will be limited in our ability to really resolve those market failures. This is why there is a real room for enforcers and policymakers to step in and make sure that markets deliver, that they deliver on the promise of innovation. Thank you so much for such a such an insightful answer, especially in the contemporary setup where the consumers, most uh, at the most of the cases, do not have the complete information about the products or services which are being offered in the internet or the digital space. And more specifically with respect to the standard form of contracts, which are generally used in terms of provision of services and provision of goods, the consumers indeed have the uh, consumers rather should be aware about their rights. So like that was something really practical and I'm sure our audience who are listening to the podcast as consumers would also like feel the same. So to conclude uh, the last uh, last discussion of ours, how far do you think that the DMA and DSA have been efficient to tackle the challenges imposed by tech barons and to contain the disruption of demand and supply in terms of innovation through their ex-ante regulations, if you'd like to enlighten us to see. Sure. So we, we looked at the, the DMA and the DSA, and there are significant improvements over the status quo. So they will help. But as we explain in the book, why they will not necessarily curb the toxic innovation, nor will they necessarily provide us the innovation that we require to meet the future challenges. So our book has an important lesson for, for policymakers, and we, we analogize it to duck hunting, that when you're hunting ducks, you don't shoot where the duck is. You have to aim where the duck is heading. And a lot of the DMA and the DSA aims where the duck is currently. And there are a few provisions of the DMA that are looking forward and are going to have some impact, but they're not going to have a significant impact as policymakers um, believe. There's also a fundamental misconception by policymakers in the DMA. And you could see it in the amendments where the belief is that if we increase transparency and we shine a light on these powerful big tech barons, that competition then is going to provide then consumers with the privacy, the autonomy that they desire. But what we point out is that that's not going to be the case. That even if you break up all of these powerful companies, which is much further than the behavioral regulations under the DMA and DSA, you're not necessarily going to get the innovation and the privacy that you might desire. It goes back to the value chain. And until you address the value chain, 
you're going to have these problems. And so, so long as, you know, and, and the case in point is you can break up meta and Facebook can be independent. But you'll have then another entity like TikTok that will be relying on behavioral advertising, engaging in some of the very behavior and creating some of the very toxic innovations that our book discusses. So in the last chapter, what we tell the competition authorities and policymakers is rather than just aiming where the duck is, you've got to look at fundamental principles, three fundamental principles. And those three pr principles can actually help then inform policymakers to promote innovation that actually serves our needs. And maybe to conclude, two comments. Uh, first, uh, with respect to the principles, we, we, we highlight the significance of all of us appreciating the value of innovation, taking stock of the incentives at stake, and really uh, appreciating the role of the diversity of innovation, how we as a society should be very careful and worried when we gamble on a single provider of innovation. Diversity is a key. Uh, plurality of innovation is a key. Um, and to add to that, one additional comment, maybe for anyone listening who is exploring either as a, as a business or as a user uh, the online environment, one of the things that we try to do in the book is really um, give the reader a better understanding of how the value chain is likely to impact on the behavior of those big tech barons. So if you're thinking of developing a certain technology, if you're thinking of entering into a space, by understanding what stands at the heart of the strategies deployed by leading platforms and ecosystems, uh, you can probably um, improve your position uh, because you can then understand where the opportunities are and maybe identify the risks uh, ahead of time. Otherwise, once you step in, um, it, is like, um, it is like walking in a minefield where you simply don't have the map of all the threats um, that, that are relevant and could affect your, your growth and prosperity. Thank you so much, professors, for insightful answers and a very worthy discussion on the book. And we are really glad to have you on the podcast and our you listeners would be glad to hear to you and also to read the book, How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation and How to Strike Back. While reading, I really enjoyed it. I gained a lot of insights on competition or the recent trends and also the upcoming policies, the legislation, some legislations that we have, some are still pending which uh, try to curb the anti-competitive practices. Some are successful, some are not. But it's like competition geniuses that you both are, that we get to know about a lot of things in the field, in the practical areas of law, and especially in competition law. And we thank you for writing such a wonderful piece of book. And we really enjoyed it with respect to the podcast and also with respect to the book. Thank you so much for accepting our invite. And we also hope that you support us and also you uh, also 
discuss with us in future on relevant areas of competition law and policy we would love to hear from you very soon thank you so much it's been a pleasure joining you yeah thank you we really appreciate it thank you so much